Hello, listeners. We are super excited today because we've got a very special guest here on Discography. He's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the lead singer of one of the most iconic rock bands in history. It's an honor to have him on the show, so please welcome to the podcast the legendary Mr. David Lee Roth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Diamond Dave, I'm going to call you Diamond Dave if that's all right, um, so we don't confuse you with uh, my co-host here, who we'll call uh, Regular Dave. Oh, yes. So, Diamond Dave, you've just announced your retirement from the music industry. Um, do you have any plans yet for next year, for 2022? Um, you know, other than taking some uh, time off. I'll tell you all about it. Uh, uh, tell us what about it. Uh, okay, let's switch gears here. Diamond Dave, the first six albums you made with Van Halen are timeless classics. What are some of the most indelible memories of making those albums? Are there any particular moments that stand out now that you look back on your life's work? Yeah! Well, what moments in particular? God damn it, baby, no, I ain't lying to you. I'm only gonna tell you one time. Well, uh, you didn't really tell us uh, one time, though. Uh-huh. All right, uh, tell us about your relationship with Eddie Van Halen and uh, how that has changed over the years, and and what kind of terms were you on um, when Eddie passed? God damn it, baby, no, I ain't lying to you. I'm only gonna tell you one time. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I know you keep saying that. Uh-huh. Well, Diamond Dave, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Please stop that, please. So, as I was saying, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, and thank you so much for joining us today. We have learned a lot. Yeah! Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. How you doing, Joe? This is Dave Gebro talking, and that guy... I'm Joe Kennedy. Welcome to the pod today. Exciting day on the pod today. Absolutely. Joe, I remember back in the day, we're talking, what, 31 years ago? Close, uh, right? 32. 1990. When I met you... You had long flaxen hair down to your tuckers. It wasn't flaxen. I think flaxen <laughs> okay. means it's blonde, which it was not. Wasn't it lighter than it currently is? No. It's the same kind of... There was just more of it. It was down to your tuckers, is what I'm trying right. to tell you. Yeah. I had like kind of... Uh, I kind of had like long stringy 90s hair. Like I could have been like a guy in Pearl Jam or something, even though it was slightly pre-Pearl Jam. No, you looked more like the guy from The Wonder Stuff. Or, Maybe, yeah. Or, it wasn't really like a full mullet. It was kind of all one length. You looked like thing. Walter Becker, basically. You're right, right. You did. You really But like I did if, have... I'm, like if Walter Becker was an enough's enough. I did, I did have a kind of proper mullet um, just a few years prior to that. So and you're telling the, me that the time that I'm... When I met you was not the apex of the hairline? Well, it, it might have been... Uh, Long. It wasn't that it was just longer, but the, you know the mullet is two distinct haircuts on the same head. That's the key, you know, component of it. I definitely had the kind of like feathered-looking jam in the front, and then the the, the flowing locks in the back. From, from where I, you... I wore like round John Lennon glasses. It was it was it was yeah, it was yeah. a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. The wonder stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the longest my hair has ever been is uh, was during the lockdown. Uh, but it grows up and out. I got a Jufro, so mm-hmm. I look ridiculous. I can't pull off a Walter Becker. 
So um, today's today we'll be turning the spray cans. This is um, you know when we first came up with the concept of doing this show. Um, this was one of the first names I threw out there that I really wanted to cover. Um, and so today, spray cans are getting turned on. Van Halen. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen was my childhood hero, my boyhood hero. Um, I play music for a living. I play keyboards and guitar. And, um, you know, a lot of how I learned how to play was learning how to play the riffs off these records and just figuring out how Eddie did all of this stuff. And um, I don't really play like him. But um, his approach to playing, especially the way he plays rhythm guitar and chord stuff, um, I think is very... There's a sort of like a, a very uh, mathematical kind of logic to his playing, the way he constructs riffs. That there, it's, I think that's the way he constructs riffs and the way he plays rhythm guitar. I think it was very, very influential. He's like me. a Matt Rushmore figure to you, basically. He, he really is. I mean, I, you know, I definitely connect with the music. I had all their uh, cassettes when I was a kid. Um, I st- I believe I may have fallen for the uh, the sham of the Hagar era and bought the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I did, that was the only one. The Diamond Dave stuff. Um, spoiler alert! I had it all, and um, uh, you know I remember New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty three into eighty four, when they when they when MTV premiered Jump. Mm-hmm. I remember who I was with, where I was. To me, that's like the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. Well, I was at the time, you know, what eleven year old kid that had a synthesizer, and um, you know that jump, playing the jump lick on the synth was like a, a great party trick. Yeah, <laughs> got me a lot yeah. of attention. A little bit of Bach, a little bit of rock <laughs> yeah. and roll. Yeah. Still have that synth to this day. My, my trusty Roland Juno Six. Still got it. So what, what what we're trying to sort of convey here is that you guys are in very good hands today. In fact, I'm in good hands today because I'm telling you, Joe knows his shit about this band. So we're going to go in a nice little wild ride here. Um, these guys kind of are, you know, early on. Why don't you go into our prehistory here on these guys? What about when they were kids and stuff? Yeah. They're immigrants. Uh, Alex and Eddie, the brothers, are. Uh, they were uh, born in Amsterdam. And they're from a mixed race family. Their dad is Dutch and their mom is Indonesian. Um, so um, they kind of came to America. English, not their first language. Um, they moved. I think Alex was nine and Eddie was seven. So, um, you know, they were kind of outsiders. They moved to Pasadena, but they quickly, you know, their dad's a musician. Their dad was, a, I think, a professional musician uh, back in Holland. And, um, you know, they, their brothers definitely inherited the gift. They're both incredibly naturally talented. And so they just started kind of playing music and playing in bands. Um, the Broken Combs. <laughs> right. Yeah, they played in a bunch of a variety of different things. And the kind of famous story is that um, Eddie was originally the drummer and Alex was originally the guitar player. Um, Eddie got very advanced on the guitar, wasn't really a great drummer. Alex struggled to play the guitar, but was great at drums. It's like the Reese's peanut butter cup yeah, of, yeah. of um, musical pairings. <laughs> I wonder how long that that stupid bullshit went on until they figured it out. Yeah, I don't know, but not that long, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so you know, they're. I think it's like probably in the early '70s they started kind of turning into what the sort of more modern incarnation of Van Halen, the Trojan Rubber Company, right? Was that I think one of that names? was the first incarnation. But then my favorite thing about uh, the next name change is that they didn't know that there was another band called Genesis. <laughs> right. it, this is yeah. 1972. They'd never heard of Genesis. Yeah. Um, so they were called Genesis. Mm-hmm. Then they found out, and then they switched to Mammoth. 
Um, so yeah, so the, they start playing around the past the party scene in Pasadena um, in the early seventies, like around seventy two, um, and uh, they you know kick a lot of ass already. The 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 brothers have a um, there's a really good interview with David Lee Roth on. Um, on uh, Mark Maron's show, where he talks about the early uh, years of the band, and they had an, just an incredible work ethic. Um, you know, those guys would just work; they would rehearse and just play for uh, hours and hours. Isn't that right, Dave? Yeah, yeah. So, thank you. So, yeah. So, um, they uh, when they started playing out, they were already pretty polished and pretty badass. But any tape you hear of them playing at like a party or you know de- early demos, they they just never sound anything but awesome. And then at some point along the line, they needed a sound system, so they found a guy who had one and started renting it for him uh, from him for ten dollars a night. Mm-hmm. That guy's name was David Lee Roth. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah, so they start gigging with with Roth, and um, who at and, that time was fronting a local R and B band called the Red Ball Jets. And the R and B thing, I think, is kind of key to understanding. Again, this is really good material that was in uh, the, the Mark Maron episode of WTF with Roth. You know, his his approach to doing, you know, when he, when they when he got into writing. His his he was very heavily in, influenced by R and B, and like you know the songs that had those big like R and B kind of hooks. So he really brings that to the table, a kind of more like a sort of hip shaking kind of quality to Van Halen. Look, always looking for that big uh, you know R and B style hooks. You know, if if you think about some of their songs in that context, it makes a lot of sense. And the funniest thing to me uh, about uh, how David Lee Roth became part of the band is that the tension must have been so apparent from the beginning that it was uh, uh, like a push-pull thing with Eddie's style uh, because there were a whole bunch of auditions where they were like, nah, fuck this guy. We just need his sound system. (laughs) So he failed the audition a shitload of times, then got into the band. So that had to have been in play early. And it's a, you know, that to me is the success of the band, but they probably saw it as a potential enormous hindrance. Yeah, well, again, you hear this. I think he wrote with them from pretty early on. Um, so you listen back to some of the very... We'll get to their earliest you know, recordings uh, in a minute. Um, but even then, he had a really good sense of, as, a, as a writer, as a songwriter. Um, some of the stuff that made it on their early albums, they were playing already at this time, like in mid early to mid-70s. Um, but anyway, there was another character in the band, this guy Mark Stone, who was kind of the, the Pete Best of Van Halen, who um, quit the band to, I don't know, get a, get a job or something. <laughs> loser. <laughs> and, then, um, and then they found um, jovial, um, rotund bassist Michael Anthony, and the, the classic lineup is formed. He's actually kind of a key part of it, Michael Anthony's his voice, the great, he does the great backup vocals. So you kind of got a lot going on. Um, and they were, and they a became, lot of weapons at they were a big grassroots band. I mean, this was not like, you know, they weren't critics darlings or anything. This was just them like, you know, doing all the grungy work themselves, putting up flyers, yeah. all that kind of thing. Yeah, kind of around then, around the mid 70s, they kind of graduated from playing the backyard parties and started playing on the Sunset Strip. And that's where we enter phase one, punk metal, 1974 to 1979. Right, so yeah, they start kind of playing the strip. They, they they make a demo in '74. These are known as the Cherokee demos, and um, it, it's it's a pretty interesting snapshot. The first tune is kind of like a folk, like a like it sounds like they're trying to do like Led Zeppelin three or something. Yep. 
Um, Side two. Yeah, right. So it's, it's this kind of like uh, spacey folk acoustic guitar thing. But then they already had early versions of... Um, Almost know, like, like Fleetwood Mac Landslide or something. Yeah, it's weird. right. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Kind of worth a listen to. You can find it on YouTube if you look for the Cherokee, Van Halen Cherokee demos. Very, as you called it, very proto. Right. Uh, this is a, a long way away from the Van Halen that we know. And they're basically all these strands of roads not taken. Yeah, yeah. Ed, Ed already sounds incredible here. He's 19. He's already like totally burning. You know, he's already a, a unique and amazing guitar player. Um, he's so yeah, he's 19 when he makes these uh, demos, and so they started playing like a Gazzari's, um, and then you know the whiskey, all the you know all this all the spots on the uh, on the Sunset Strip, and they built started building up a big following. And then uh, I believe it was uh, Rodney Bingenheimer saw Van Halen at, G- at Gazzari's. Yeah, so Rodney Bingenheimer is this kind of like local tastemaker legend for those of you who don't know who Rodney is. Um, so he's, yeah, he's I've part seen of him. I've seen him many a time hunkered over a bowl of soup. Yeah, in, having uh, a split, split pea soup uh, yeah. canners. Yeah, he's um, still around. Uh, he's, uh, but yeah, if he's, you know, he's a, he's a part of their mythology. So he he kind of turned Gene Simmons onto them. And, and so, it was, I mean, very odd because talk about the right guy to discover them. But, uh, you know, Gene was uh, put together these demos called Zero Demos. And, uh, yeah, and Gene, it was a bunch Gene wanted of demos. to sign them. It was them. 29 tracks. Yeah, Gene wanted to sign them. I guess they had, like, he wanted to, the, his uh, management company to manage them. He also wanted to call them Daddy Long Legs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> <fucking> idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, um, nobody was convinced though, for whatever reason. And you and I have both heard those demos and they're fucking scorching. They're yeah, they're really pretty great. Good. They, the, the Gene Simmons produced demos, um, have a, they, it's pretty interesting to listen. Well, they don't, they're already playing like Van Halen. You know, they, they have a lot of the, there's a lot of them and they have a lot of the riffs kind of together that would end up being on their subsequent albums. Um, the way the Gene Simmons demos are recorded are very like dry and punchy. Mm-hmm. Um, like as a, the their debut album they eventually made with Ted Templeman is is very like cavernous reverb, like larger than life sounding. And the uh, the Gene Simmons demos have this kind of like tight, punchy, like you're watching them play in their rehearsal room or something. It's 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 fun to listen to. Like you know, Alex Alex doesn't have the snare drum sound yet. Um, and the main thing that's different, I feel like what they got drastically better at when they made the album is the vocal arrangements aren't quite there. Like the, the vocals aren't really quite up to the top level, um, where they would get in, in, in a relatively short time. But yeah, they made, there's Some a lot of the performances of, though. Uh, first, the one that jumps out to me is House of Pain. It yeah. just sounds like unhinged. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just I remember uh, there's a lot of energy into the way they're playing. Maybe. Yeah, it's like it's like they were later. Yeah, the, the 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 arrangements were improved, but also the energy was corralled a little bit. Yeah. So the other thing they have going for them at this time is, um, you know, now Ed's what, like maybe 21, 22. And he's just head and shoulders above anybody else really playing guitar at that. You know, he's he's already got all the innovations of. Ed is a lot like, um, to me, he's similar to, um, he's kind of a, a, follows in the footstep of Les Paul. He's not only an amazing player, but he's also kind of an inventor and a pioneer, um, you know, just with guitar technology. Um, he was one of the first people to adopt the Floyd Rose tremolo, which is the, the, the whammy bar thing on the, on, the, on the guitar, and to really do those exaggerated dive bomb effects. Before that piece of gear was invented, 
you know, you would like, if you try to do that with a tremolo bar, do that like, woo, and do a big bend like that, you, the guitar would just go completely out of tune. But the Floyd Rose allowed you to do that and then stay in tune. So, you know, he figures that out, puts it on his guitar, and he's instantly doing all these crazy, innovative effects with the whammy bar. Nobody's doing it. You know, um, he has the blazing fast chops, um, the great phrasing. You know, it's, it's, it, you can't help when you hear him. It's, it's, even on these recordings, it just blows you away. He's how good he is. Why don't you marry him? Uh, I, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then they get a contract from Warner Brothers. Uh, not not a very good one. Uh, it leaves them that <laughs> they're they're over a million dollars in debt after their first uh, tour, supporting Journey and Montrose. Right. So we're peeking into the future here. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, let's talk about their first album. And, and, and actually, the way that they work with Ted Templeman is always very quick. They're in the studio, what one two weeks tops in general. The working methods. Um, yeah, so the, he, the, the Ted Templeman sort of figured out that when there's also a set of demos called the Warner demos that are kind of probably from pretty much the same time period as the Gene Simmons ones. They're playing some of the same songs, but they, they, they're just, and they're obviously just running through their set live and going straight to two track or something. So you listen to those, um, that they have the sound then they have the snare drum sound they have the re the big reverb like Ted Templeman got him and even just do those demos obviously he had a vision of how he wanted to record it and the, um you know they go into do Van Halen 1 and that has a really um specific sonic imprint the guitar is all panned one way the reverb comes out the other side the drums are really big and present a lot of like reverb it just, and just sounds, and just sounds really anchor, huge just to anchor us in time so this is recorded from uh September to October 1977 and it comes out in 1978. Um, the the entirety, uh, I, the guitar parts took a week. Uh, the vocals took two additional weeks. And uh, it's rough and tumble. And also, I would say, probably one of my 20 or 30 favorite debut records of all time. Yeah, it's what would the, you say? It's one of the classic debut records ever made, for sure. They, you know, Ted Templeman was a... Uh, when after Gene Simmons' management passed... And then Ted Templeman saw them not that much later with Mo Austin. So they've got like all the top like label guys sniffing around. You know, they they uh, he really wanted them. So he's he's kind of the label guy and the producer. So he really had a vision for them. Um, and so they go in to track the album, and um, it, it it in a way it is a little bit rough around the edges, but it's also compared to what they were doing in the clubs. It's it's pretty polished. They got the they got the vocals really down. It seems like they kind of like um, tightened up some of the vocal melodies and things, um, and um, it has sold 10 million copies over the years. It's yeah, one of the most successful debut albums ever. Huge, uh, and it only was uh, peaked at number 19, uh, but it sold just sold a over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah a tremendous amount of copies. And there's a few songs on here that are that are standards. Uh, Running with the devil, uh, ain't talking about love. Jamie's crying. Uh, to me, the my, I think my favorite song on the record is probably Atomic Punk. What do you think? Yeah, it's it's very strong. A lot of good songs on it. Um, there's no, but there's not a single bad song on the record. Yeah, and it, and it, you know you also have to discuss Eruption, which is kind of just um, you know yeah. It's, let's it's, let's delve into that. That's so, an important song. So that is kind of just like a like kind of just re resetting the bar for all guitar players. Um, so that has so much in it. I mean, it has all the crazy tremolo stuff in it with the, with the whammy bar. It, it, it kind of unveils the uh, finger the, tapping the finger technique, tapping technique yeah. in Eruption. 
Um, and the the part the the, uh, the the sort of classic iconic finger tapping riff that ends that is um, it's actually pretty simple to play. Um, you can kind of learn it if you're a beginner, really. It's more it's 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 kind of pretty cool melodically, but it's really not very difficult to play. So um, it, it was kind of approachable, at least that part of it. The rest of Eruption, where he's just kind of playing in freeform style, he's it's so burning. It's it's really like you know. It's, if you met an alien, like a classic little squat, not E.T., but the alien from Meatballs 2, um, and, and you were hanging out with this alien and it expressed an interest in metal, this is probably the album I would probably put on Ain't Talking About Love. Yeah, they kind of exist in a weird space for me. Where they, yes, they are metal, but they're not. If you, if you think of what else was going on in metal at the time, it's kind of like new wave of British heavy metals coming out. There's sort of this... Um, they're they're metal with a sense of like uh, irony, you know. They 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 have they sort of like a, it's t- sort of tongue in cheek, not really very often copied. I mean, there are a lot of imitators of Eddie's guitar style, and people who are looking to you know to have that same kind of like. Uh, no, nobody can really pull out. They're kind of an outlier. They're kind of like there's there's. Look, when I was 11 years old, Judas Priest was just too much for me. Mm-hmm. It was just I wasn't that metal. I just but um, and some Sabbath was for me. I wasn't the mm-hmm. like the huge Sabbath kid as a, as an I remember having the tape of Born Again for mm-hmm. Christ's sake, uh, but uh, Halen. I mean that was. That I was, think of them almost more. Easily. I think of them almost more in a category like Boston or Cheap Trick or so something. hard They're, rock. Hard rock. I think of them more in that kind of style than than metal. Um, They're almost interim. They're kind of a. They have their feet they're just they they really are their unique kind, they kind are, of genre. Yeah, it's kind of amazing how nobody really how how hard it is to imitate that sound and nobody there's not really another band I can think of that sounds like Van Halen and does it well. Um, kind of yeah. And another great thing about them is you know when they uh, when they went in to do their second record, they even were able to pull off what was basically a sophomore slump. Right. Um, oh, by the way, I give Van Halen one. Five stars. <laughs> right. Five stars for Van Halen one. Yeah. Quite clearly. Quite clearly. Quite clearly five. Yeah. He's also, you know, I think Roth as a writer, um, these songs, you know, yes, they have amazing guitar riffs and they're, they're, you know, the band plays incredible, but, you know, he's putting them over because these songs have really good hooks. They're really, like, you know, clever. Like, the lyrics are not really cringy. Like, you know, he's, he's, he's good. He's a good yeah. songwriter. Yeah. He doesn't, I think he really doesn't get due for that. I mean, he's kind of a silly persona sometimes, like, he, in, in a self-cultivated kind of way. Obviously, he's a showman and has a bit of a, you know, uh, circus ringleader kind of definitely, thing to him. Definitely has shit But I think he it. gets overlooked as being a really strong songwriter. He's, he wrote, you know, a lot the of The melodies stuff. are really strong. Yeah. These are not just you know, just straighting your face hard rock They, they go together songs. well. They're a yeah. good songwriting team. They don't really get thought of as that way, but they really are. So then in 1978, uh, a, a week after completing their first huge world tour, uh, they went into the studio and their second album was done in a week. So it's definitely a little bit less menacing and more backstage party down than the debut. Um, but it's almost as great as an album uh, recorded, you know, I mean, recorded directly after a tour in a week, it's as good as it could possibly be. Yeah. It's got the two great singles on it, um, Dance the Night Away and Beautiful Girls. Um, Great singles. Beautiful Girls is great. Dance the Night Away, I love. I know there's metalheads out there. Yeah, that's a great song. My friend Eric hates that song, but he's 
He's real metal, so I think they look down on a song. They were trying to do, Ed, when Ed wrote that, he was trying to do something similar to Go Your Own Way. That was his his take on writing a song like Go Your Own Way. That's hysterical. There's a lot of great songs on the record. I mean, Somebody Get Me a Doctor, Bottoms Up, Light Up the Sky is that sick ascending intro riff. I mean, this record also has some of Ed's most amazing playing and soloing. There's one tune, a song called Out of Love Again on here. That's maybe my favorite Ed solo that he ever played. And there's no tapping in it. There's not really any like, you know, uh, any special technique to it. He's just sort of playing like a blues kind of there. And it it is so on fire. There's a guy who there's um, there's, you know, there's YouTube tutorials to play like pretty much any any Eddie Van Halen solo out there. But there's a guy who does who has a tutorial. um, You can look for it in YouTube out of love again solo and he plays it perfect so you can see exactly how eddie did it and it's such a study of economy his hand like never moves up and down the neck he's all just staying in in that one position and playing all those crazy licks it's watching somebody do it's really awesome i bet you could do it it would take me a while to learn it i don't know it would take me i would have to practice a lot i'd have to (laughs) it's a lot harder than that it's very hard to play. So this album, you know, it's got, you know, at this point, they already have the formula established. They have Eruption 2, which is called Spanish Fly mm-hmm. here. Uh, they have the cover, which is You're No Good. Uh, everything is only just slightly less great than the first album. Uh, so we're measuring in a sliding scale here. It, it, in a way, it's as consistent as the debut. Uh, but the highs just aren't quite as high for all the obvious reasons. I'm going to go ahead and give it four and a half stars. Me too. Woohoo! All right, now we're entering phase two. Eddie Guttersleeves, <laughs> 1980 to 1981. Yeah, so yeah, I, I always have thought of the six Roth albums um, that start their career as coming in pairs. So VH1, VH2, and then the next two, and then the next two. So yeah, this is kind of a darker period. This is the most interesting yeah, period. Yeah, I agree. Women and Children First is where we begin. This is 1980, and uh, again, recorded in about two weeks. Um, it is a progression, though. Uh, there's more studio overdubs, less emphasis on backing vocals, um, and there's actually the only female backing vocal ever recorded for a Van Halen song on this. Mm-hmm. Nicolette Larson. That's right. Could this be magic? No covers on this. So this is all meat, no chaff. It's heavy as fuck. Goodbye, party down record. Uh, this and Fair Warning are slick to the to the gills with gutter sleeves, basically. Yeah, there's darker ones on this. There's some there's some cool rave ups on this, like uh, you know songs that are kind of like hint at their club days Romeo Delight and Loss of Control really kind of unhinged like love Loss of Control man yeah that's a wild song um, this one has some idiosyncrasies this record this is this one's not really full of radio hits I guess uh, and the Cradle Will Rock kind of made it on the radio that song is so good man it's simply it's just one of their best songs yeah, powerhouse start to the record and also you know that moment at, at uh, obviously you do a minute 47 seconds in uh, Eddie's moment of reflection on the guitar um, it, which introduces Have You Seen Junior's Grades? <laughs> yeah. And so to me, that section right there, that's the apotheosis of their metal uh, perfection synthesis yeah. as a songwriting team. The main lick of In the Cradle of Rock is not played on guitar. It's on a Wurlitzer electric piano through a bunch of Marshalls. Oh, cool. Yeah, um, so it's a keyboard song, really. 
Um, but yeah, really heavy. Um, the two staggering classics are, and the Cradle Will Rock, and everybody wants some. Yeah, that's amazing. That's got that's got a big epic, like super fun song. And then could this be magic? Is another acoustic one that's where Ed plays slide, and um, it's she just plays beautiful slide. It's a great song. Um, yeah, this album's kind of the, this a sort of a step like a sort of stepchild in their early catalog, but um, I think frequently underrated. Um, five stars for me for Women and Children First. Unquestionably, five stars for me too. All right, they're they're doing pretty good so far. Yeah, then nineteen eighty one, fair warning. So. Uh, it sold more than two million copies, but this was the slowest selling album of the David Lee Roth era. Yeah, so to me, this one, um, the thing that really makes this one stand out is like Ed's guitar tone is like at its absolute most massive. The, the, you know, the, he's famous for what um, was known as the brown sound. That's how he refers to the sound Ween of his guitar. Ween was famous for that. No, the br- well, the brown sound is reference to the very super distorted sound he could get out of his guitar, which he, which again was kind of an innovation. He used a device called the uh, the Variac, which is basically kind of like it's essentially the equivalent of plugging your amplifier into like a dimmer switch and like dimming the lights on your walls. It cuts the electricity to the amp. So the tubes have to work really hard, and and you just get you end up getting this like uh, it's, you can hear it happen when like if you if you're playing guitar and you turn your tube amp off, when the tubes start to crap out, it starts to get really super fuzzy. So he figured out a way to keep it always in that state of like they only have a little bit of electric charge in them, and so the resulting distortion is just this crazy saturated with like beautiful harmonic overtones and. It, it, it's it, it really reaches its uh, apotheosis. The, the yeah, tone on it sounds, Fair Warning, it like sounds that guitar nasty. at the beginning, the guitar at the beginning of Unchained. It's like yeah, that's yeah. the most insane guitar tone yep. anyone's ever achieved. Yep. Plus, you got that. Um, uh, come on, Dave, give me a break. One break <laughs> yeah. coming up. Yeah. So that's the, a, just a great moment. Yeah. That, that's Templeman, right? Uh, that is Ted Templeman actually saying yeah, yeah. the uh, give, "Come on, Dave, give me a break." That's line. one of the great all-time rock in his VH tunes, unquestionably. Yeah, so that's yeah. This one um, has the two the two singles are "Unchained" and "So This Is Love" are kind of the two kind of pop songs. But the rest of the record's quite dark. Mean Street, Dirty Movies, Sinners Swing, Hear About It Later, all amazing songs. So this is love. A really, really strong record. There's a couple of tunes uh, I could do without, and their first uh, bad song, mm. "Push Comes to Shove." No, I like fan. "Push Comes to Shove." You do? Yeah. No, I think it fits in great on the it's album. It's a fucking disco song. It's it's really weird. <laughs> I, I love it as, a, and it's got great guitar playing. It's I like that one. I, I have not, the the weak spot to me is maybe the closer, the uh, Sunday afternoon in the park, and mm-hmm. one foot yeah, out the door. Weak. Even that's pretty cool though. The, they, he used um, an electroharmonics, electroharmonics mini synth to get that sound, which is a cheap little like kind of like almost yeah, like a guitar. Yeah, but it sounds pedal. fucking farty. I don't really no, like. I, like the, I don't <laughs> like that. It's not. That's my least favorite thing on it. But um, I do like push comes to shove. Yeah, I mean, I mean you could just you, know, hook this, you could just hook this whole album straight into my veins. I'd be fine. with Yeah, that. yeah. I mean, look, we're splitting hairs now, but you know. Uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Just talk about how great they are. They are One <laughs> the fl- intro, the intro to Mean Street is another thing. He's doing this like, like he's tapping with his thumb and his finger, and it's it's if you, that if if you watch watch him actually do it, it's kind of amazing. Um, and then it kicks in with that great riff. Like it, he's he's still really innovating on guitar and um, and and still blowing everybody's minds. And sure. and there also there's like growing pains to try to get to where they would wind up at 1984. Right. Uh, one foot out the door. It's like they're taking baby steps there, but they don't quite have the formula down yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this one I give four and a half stars. Five stars. Fair warning for me. Five stars. Yeah. Okay. 
just because of the the couple songs I could do with that. But again, mm-hmm. we're splitting hairs. Yeah. But here we go into a whole different section. Phase three. Phase three. Big Bad Bill is Sweet William now, 1982 to 1984. So, yeah, so this is kind of, they have a big uh, commercial breakthrough here. Their only real hit single up to now was Dance the Night Away. I think that went, like, top 20. So that was kind of a radio hit. They they were pretty popular on rock radio, and they, they were playing arenas and stuff at this time, so they're already pretty big. But then they, um, you know, Diver Down is um, kind of, it seems like it's their attempt to do something commercial. So there's a lot of covers on it. Five out of the 12 songs are covers. Yeah, and the two lead singles are both covers, um, neither of which I really like very much. Pretty Woman and um, Dancing in the Street. Yeah, it's not their their moment in the sun. Plus, Big Bad Bill is Sweet William now. Uh, is basically the template for part one of Roth's solo career. Mm-hmm. So that's a love it or hate it thing for sure. Yeah. And Happy Trails is a throwaway. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the cover of Where Have All the Good Times Gone. I think that's yeah, a, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a pretty good cover. That yeah, and that's a good album. choice for a cover yeah. too because it's not a huge kink song and it's a great one. Now, the VH originals on this, there's only really four of them. Hang em High, Little Guitars, The Full Bug. And secrets. secrets, yeah, they're all really yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, um, the full bug's probably the weakest of the four, but um, still all cool originals. And then, oh, and, and you know, little guitars is kind of the centerpiece, right? More amazing guitar stuff, and that's like you know, um, that's a, a five star song, great song. This one is, of my favorites. This is, I mean, I'm sure you would agree. This is as weak as Roth era Van Halen. Yeah, this is gets. the weakest of the first six. Um, still not bad though. Still solid. And there's another great guitar piece, Cathedral. That's that's Eddie like you know manipulating his volume knob and yep. and like doing a dotted dotted eighth note delay. And, and Intruder. There's another proggy cr- well, Intruder's just the jam. Solo. That's just the jam before yeah, yeah. Pretty Woman. Um, but anyway, it worked because Pretty Woman was a pretty big hit. I think that was like a top ten hit. And I think when I was a kid, so I was maybe, Diver Down's what, uh, 82 it comes out? Yes. So I think that's probably the first time I was really uh, aware of them was when um, when I heard Pretty Woman. But this, Which, by this the is, way, this is a, a huge year for them. Yeah, there's an insane video for Pretty, Wim, Pretty Woman that um, aired on MTV once. And even in, the, uh, even in the days of 1982, where you could pretty much put anything on MTV, it was d- decided to be too risque and offensive <laughs> and it was removed. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's kind of if... Well, I, I really won't, won't advise you to check it out. I haven't seen it, actually. <laughs> we got to put it up. We got to put it up. Uh, yeah, well, we'll put a link to it. Um, you know, if you're, if you're easily offended, maybe you want to skip it. Because it's, it's, or it's not. Just, or get offended it's and pretty weird. right in. It's pretty <laughs> weird. Right in. Um, I'm not even going to describe what it is out of... out of This same year, though, a Diver Down comes out. It doesn't necessarily make them superstars, but uh, that same year, uh, Eddie Van Halen plays the solo on Michael Jackson's Beat It. And that's when I really fell in love when I heard that. Right. That's a an absolutely iconic solo. Yeah, that's got all of his tricks in it. It's got the... Uh, it's got the dive bombs with the whammy bar. It's got the, the the legato technique shredding. It's got the the pinch harmonics. It's got tapping. It's got his fast tremolo picking. It's, he does all of that in whatever it is, 12 bars or whatever. It's, it's, it's fucking rips. It's great. And then that next year, nothing much happens. 1983, they're just... Uh, kind of just putting stuff together and recording, but he contributes this. Eddie contributes the score, um, and some in, and some instrumental tracks to the movie The Wildlife. Yeah, so if you're a real AVH uh, completist, 
and you want to hear Eddie farting around with a drum machine and playing guitar licks over it, you can check that out. But there's, isn't he toying around with the synth too? Yeah, there's synth stuff so in that, there too. So that kind of gets us there. Yeah. I think that was, that kind of gets us there. Yeah. Um, but let's take a quick detour, may we? Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's talk about that fucking legendary brown M&M contract writer. <laughs> I don't know if that story is apocryphal or not. I've heard Roth talk I, about it again recently. Yeah, so you know the reasoning behind it. Yeah, the, the reasoning is that, you know, they had this very complicated lighting rig and they were worried that, you know, the technical people weren't taking the, weren't reading the, uh, you know, the instructions closely enough and that it was going to be a safety hazard. So if they came in and they, and there was red m M&M, or brown M&Ms in the bowl that they knew they were dealing with people that weren't reading the contract Right, which closely. is totally valid and very smart, I think. I wonder if that's I love really, it. I wonder if that's I, really I can <laughs> see, I can totally see that having happened. Why would that be that apocryphal? That seems like a odd way to uh, I think that was real. I've seen I believe here's I've the, seen here's the problem. The con- here's the problem with it. The people who are putting your concert rider together and giving you your M&Ms and like hummus and bread and shit aren't the same people who are rigging up the lights. <laughs> it's a whole different part of the concert apparatus that does that doesn't make it i think through really whatever haze to they were in at the time that's probably as good as they could do <laughs> and so that's pretty good yeah i mean, i think that story is uh they were just, i don't they think it's being wise asses i think no no i'm more of a i have a peter pan outlook on that kind of stuff <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so then we're heading into 1984 and the album 1984 um talk about going out big on, on top no cover tunes this time, just pure fire, right? Uh, yeah. This is uh, came out uh, in January '84. Uh, it was the last Van Halen studio album until a different kind of truth to feature David Lee Roth um, on the entirety of it, uh, who wind up wound up leaving the band the following year. We'll get to that. So yeah, they really kind of scale the heights of the mountain here and just become the hugest thing. Uh, they. They fully conquer the medium of music video. Um, they make three music videos from this that are like probably three of the most played music videos like ever. Um, it went to you know the jump went to number one. And I think part of the reason it was so exciting is to look at the recording methods that changed this time around. So um, the first five albums took. Uh, an average of two weeks. The first album took five days. Mm-hmm. The rest of them took uh, under uh, two weeks, except for one. Uh, and this took a year. Right. And there, they, there was not a whole lot of other stuff on the palette before this, other than the, you know the trio and 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 uh, Dave. Um, you know, they might throw an occasional keyboard thing in here or there, but you know, Jump is you know has the, well the first song and then Jump are kind of like these. It's you know the Oberheim OBX synth is all over it. And um, it's very prominently like a synth thing, the first couple of songs. You know what Jump was inspired by, right? No. So David Lee Roth was um, watching a man trying to figure out whether he wanted to commit suicide by jumping off uh-huh. of a skyscraper. Uh-huh. And this was his inspiration to him to do it. Is that right? Yeah. Huh. That's what he said. Why did, uh, he, so he, yeah, it, that's in his memoir. That's what he said. <laughs> I didn't know that story. Yeah. <laughs> It's the most like major key, like bright, happy sounding little synth riff. I know that's so great yeah. about it, yeah. and I love that. Uh, Guided by Voices later had a song called Maxwell Jump, because right. that's the great uh, uh, Mondegreen of this song. 
What's that? A mondegreen is when you mishear a lyric. Oh, Max. So I used to think that, uh, <laughs> Max. like, uh, uh, how deep is your love was you come to me in a submarine. Maybe the guy who was going to jump, his name was Maxwell. It's possible. And probable as well. So this, <laughs> I'd say it's almost certain. It's, it's definite at this point. So this album is just packed with great songs. Obviously, over the course of a year, they were able to put together something of a masterwork. Jump is the obvious one, but to me, uh, there's three other crazily good songs. Let's talk about Panama. Yeah, it's another one. You know, the uh, kind of it's really such a cool song. The, you know, the, the the way the just the form of the song it kicks in with that kind of iconic riff at the top, and then it goes into like a minor key thing, and then and then that whole plus it sounds like there's, there's this whole all dramatic soloing all at once, yeah. but they're creating a great song with a great. Well, there's this whole dramatic intro that kicks in and then never repeats. It's just it just sets up the song. Um, he started doing a lot of stuff. You know, a lot of Ed's solos will be over. Um, um, he'll, you know, there'll be like a, you know, it's verse chorus and then he'll solo over some other complete section of the song. So it seems like a whole new piece of music is kicking in. That happened, he does that a lot on, um, on 1984, I guess uh, throughout the records he does, but really they do that trick a lot on this record. Um, Panama is probably my favorite song, but then top Jimmy and drop dead legs are pretty goddamn. Well, while we're talking about Panama, well, this is kind of some foreshadowing, but you know, the, the lyric of that song it's a, kind of an extended metaphor about, you know, Panama is a car. So it's kind of, it has the double metaphor. It's like, maybe it's a car, maybe it's a love interest, right? So it's kind of like, you know, let's keep in mind that particular metaphor when we compare it to the work of the, the, his successor. <laughs> let's, keep, let's just keep the Panama metaphor in mind. So yeah, so 1984, it has, the, it has that clutch of really commercial songs. It has I'll Wait, co-written by Michael McDonald. So there's a definite distinction between side one and side two. Yeah, right. Speaking of Michael McDonald. Yeah. So there's the there's the clutch of all the co- very commercial songs. Yeah. Um, yeah. E- you know, even Hot for Teacher, which is kind of a hit and a single, that's kind of an unconventional like uh, pop song. It's like this like shredding fast like boogie. You know, it's, it's not really another pop song that sounds quite like that. I feel like they intentionally put deep cuts on the second side. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. But then, um, you know, the songs that are not the singles, um, the, the songs that are not commercials, they are just ripping. They're shredding so hard in this record. Yeah. I love um, Top Jimmy. That's got another it's crazy. one. That's another one of Ed's kind of guitar innovations. He's playing a Ripley guitar on that. Which is each, so on a Ripley guitar, it's a stereo guitar. And you can pan each string left to right. So if you listen in headphones, he's playing that great intro to Top Jimmy, which is all open string harmonics. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of ping-ponging back and forth because the strings are all panned It sounds different. so badass, that yeah. stuff that he's playing. Yeah, and then the whole, then not just the intro, the intro is insanely badass, but then the um, the, the body of the song, he's also playing in this open detuning, and it's, the, it, the his riffing on that, just his rhythm playing in that alone. You know, look, if Eddie Van Halen never played a guitar solo in his life, he would still be one of the greatest guitar players who ever lived, just based on his rhythm guitar mm-hmm. playing. He's that much of a genius as a rhythm guitar player. His playing on Top Jimmy is some of my very favorite playing of his. It's such a good, and then you got House of Pain too, which uh, took them a while to get around to, which to me is staggering because that song in 1976 was basically a done deal, mm-hmm. but it's in great form here. Um, you know, the, look, the album is incredible. Uh, the Michael McDonald song is not my favorite. To me, that's the runt of the litter. Mm-hmm. And Girl Gone Bad is just okay. Um, but we're splitting hairs because the the sum is better than the... Whatever the, the whole, whole is better is than the, the sum whole, of the, the whole. The whole is better than the sum of the whole. 
So I definitely give this five stars. Five stars for me too. Unquestionably. Now, now we're going into a uh, tumultuous waters. So after the 1984 tour, uh, Roth decided to quit and form a new band. So uh, there's all well, first he of... did the EP thing, right? With kind of a bunch of session guys, um, and that was really successful. So he does cover. You know, Roth kind of uh, goes solo. And puts out this EP called Crazy from the Heat, which is de- decidedly not a hard rock album. It's in like fact, pop, it, pop, yeah, pop. It's him thinking that Diver Down sounds too sleazy. Right. Yeah. So it's he does a cover a uh, cover of California Girls that I do not like at all. And, Stinks. And a cover and the Just a Gigolo thing is okay, I guess. So um, the, the Crazy from the Heat to me almost feels like it's kind of in like the Weird Al Yankovic kind of space. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. kind of doing covers, but it's sort of like a novelty comedy sort of thing. The videos that accompany it are like, you know, meant to be sort of funny. All I got to say is boozy, boozy, bop, <laughs> busy bop. So, yeah, I'm not really super into that phase of Dave's thing. Um, but it, it, those songs were both kind of California Girls, especially, was a huge hit. It went to like number two or something. And those videos kind of like dominated MTV for that year. Also, during that time, he probably thought, like, fuck Van Halen, because he was offered a $20 million film deal for a script called Crazy from the Heat. Right. And he sort of created... The, the, those, there's, like, three videos, I think, that have this sort of, like, Twilight Zone kind of world he's trying to create. Um, in retrospect, it, it seems kind of not really yeah, very funny. That didn't, <laughs> didn't work. So uh, Eddie invited... Uh, you know, they're trying to fill a pretty big shoes... Eddie invited both uh, Patty Smythe of Scandal and Daryl Hall, of all people, to replace David Lee Roth, but they, they both turned it down. Patty Smythe had the good sense. You know, she, Patty Smythe was eight months pregnant, and um, she, you know, the band had a reputation for being like, really wild and you know, hard drinking and like, arguing and fighting and throwing things at each other, and it was like high drama. So um, she was just not really interested for that reason. And then one day, Eddie went to his uh, Ferrari mechanic, and his Ferrari mechanic had said, uh, Hey, hey, I know this guy. He's got his, uh, he loves tequila, loves to party. You guys like to party, right? That guy's name? Samuel, Samuel Roy Hagar. Hagar. <laughs> that was 1985. That Ferrari mechanic should be drawn and fucking quartered. <laughs> um, okay, so... Hagar fronted Montrose. Now he was a solo artist uh, who had had a very successful year. He had I Can't Drive 55, uh, which was produced by Ted Templeman. Um, and Hagar was like, yeah, let's, let's do this. He played rhythm guitar and sang. And uh, so I'm just going to say, let's talk first, if, if we can, before we enter into phase four about the psychology of somebody who would like Sammy Hagar better than Diamond Dave. <laughs> so if you know just at the outset of, of a relationship with another human being, uh, especially in a professional setting where you have to be with them, and they tell you that Sammy Hagar is the, you know, he puts Diamond Dave to shame, there's no reason to get to know that person. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, a few things about Sammy. I'm going to try to say some nice things about Sammy. I kind of like some of his solo career hits, okay? Um, wow. I, I mean, I like uh, Your Love is Driving Me Crazy. That song's kind of good. Wow. It's kind of got like good like early MTV vibe. 
There's only one way to rock. I don't know. I don't hate it. Okay. All right. And you're, you're a nice guy. Well, I'm trying to say nice things, but if let, let's pretend there's a world. Your mama let's taught pretend, you well. Hold on. Let's pretend that uh, we're in the alternative timeline and Sammy Hagar never joined Van Halen. You would not hate those songs as much. True. True. <laughs> you would not hate True. those songs so bad. True. <laughs> right? True. So, um, and he's conventionally sort of talented. He can sing sort of high and um, hit high notes, although it sounds like he does so with immense effort. <laughs> And I think that's really the problem. That's one of the main problems. He's a very high effort sort of singer. So it sounds like he's about to just like bust a gasket at like any kind of given moment um, when he's singing. So you ready? Okay. Phase four, Cabo Wabo, 1985 to 2011. We kicked this off with 1986's 5150. Right. U.S. Prime, grade A stamped. Guaranteed, grease it up and turn on the heat. You got to throw down and roll it over once, maybe twice. Then chow down and down, down and down. Samuel Roy Hagar, good enough. So those Track the, one. The first lyrics you hear are those. And then, it, it, okay, that's, it's pretty bad when you just read them like that, but it's kind of almost worse when you hear him sing it because the, the chow down line comes at like a prominent part, like it's like the big hook part, like chow down, down, down. Look, and then the big hit on the record has your favorite line that he's ever Yeah, written. what's a classic? Yeah, only time will tell if we stand the test of time. Right. You want to sing it? No, that okay. one I don't need to sing. That one kind of just stands on its own as poetry. This as a was sort the, of MC Escher poetry. This was their first number one record, which is what sent me off onto an atheistic path for many, many years. <laughs> uh, Why well, can't this be love? Was number three. Uh, love walks in was top thirty. Dreams. Um, look, I, I I don't know what to say about this. Is if we have to explain why this is not good. Well, okay. The first, the, okay. So the 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 we're we're kind of poking fun at the good enough lyric, but it, it it's 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 a good one to kind of you know we've gone from the last album where there's kind of this metaphor about a car and an object of desire. Maybe it's a woman he's talking about. Maybe you know, to literally your the metaphor is that the woman is a piece of meat. <laughs> That's literally what the metaphor is. That's how this era that kicks seems, off. That seems worse. Yeah, it's a little bit worse. That seems worse. a little less sophisticated. I don't know about you. But this is, you know, if if you have to call a spade a spade, this is probably their best album of the Hagar era. I, I would agree, yeah. I mean, this is sort of, on some of these, you know, I it's almost like they should, like, just give the master tapes to Roth and let him take the Hagar's vocal off and just make a. But the music's own, not even as exciting. There's I some mean, of the tunes on here you could imagine as would have been good Roth songs, like "Good Enough." That's a pretty classic Van Halen. Were riff. they written for him in mind, or were he they probably just after? had a bunch of riffs around? Yeah, like yeah "Summer yeah. Nights" is another one. That's a cool riff. Probably could have been a good song. But yeah, some of the songs I think even the riffs and the the music aren't as good. Like it sounds like corporate rock. Like it best really... of both worlds. I don't really like that. No, it's that riff. Like it's I don't really like that the title track is kind of sort of like it feels like it was written by committee. It doesn't feel like it was just him sitting next so to a bottle there, of Jack or something. There are kind of like two different kinds of um Sammy Hagar songs. There's the kind of 
double entendre, bordering bordering on single entendre, sexual right, right. blues, one and a half tendre. <laughs> so, that's one kind of song, and then there's another song that's kind of like a motivational poster kind of song, you know, like the "Don't Give Up, Follow right, Your right, Dreams" right, kind of song. Right. Sometimes in the same song. So don't give up, follow your dreams, treat that woman like a piece of meat. Right, and chow down. That's right. <laughs> so I'll give this one one and a half stars. I gave I think it. That's... I gave it a grudging two stars. Okay. But that's it's in that range. So 1988, we have O U812. Before we go on to that, though, I think there's another little interesting piece of history to um, to discuss, which is Roth then goes off and forms his own band. Right. And he makes the album Eat Him and Smile. So at this point, they're kind of like a divorced, you know, they're like, it's like your mom and dad got divorced. And like, you know, um, it's, you know, and they each replaced, they each got new uh, spouses, right? right. So, um, you know, Ed but, got, Ed got but, Sammy Hagar and right. Dave got Steve Vai. And Ted Templeman. And, and Ted Templeman went with Dave. Now, you know, I, other, I love Eddie's playing a lot. I don't really tend to favor guitar shred playing. He's really kind of the only shred guitarist that I really like a lot, that who, who, I, who I think is, you know, that who I like his style. Um, Steve Vai's playing on Eat Him and Smile comes kind of close. It, it comes kind of close. It's as just, close as you could probably get. I think that's the best that Steve Vai ever played, probably, is on that record. And he captures a lot of that kind of freewheeling kind of, I'm having so much fun playing the guitar. It's really unhinged and kind of like, and, and crank kind of crazy. Um, so Dave kind of got like the better We're not reviewing it, life. but it's definitely the better record. It's, it's by, it's, and you know, I saw both tours. It's like he's, he, the, the Roth tour killed the Van Halen tour. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Roth stayed on MTV. So he's making videos still that are prominently on MTV. TV. Van Halen stopped making videos. There's no videos for really the next two albums. I think, I think maybe they made a video for something off Oh You Ain't One Too, but really they disappear from MTV. So Dave kind of gets the leg up there. That's when, you know, he was like a superstar at that point. Yeah, he's headlining arenas in his own right. Um, but then even by the next one, uh, you know, just to go on a short ch- tangent about Roth's solo career, because we're not going to spend, we're not going to go through the whole thing. But uh, Eat Him and Smile, Crazy from the Heat, or vice versa. And then Skyscraper, which is a very interesting record. He was trying something new. It actually sounds like uh, uh, Angel Angel Eyes or Angel Dream, right. yeah. doesn't it? From yeah, the Cherokee I feel like session. Skyscraper, he's trying to kind of branch out a little more. And, that, and that, those records somehow oddly kind of hold up fairly well. Um, more Damn be- Good is an excellent Yeah, better song. than you would think they would um, yeah. all these years later. Um, and the, the Van Halen albums really don't. Right. From that period. Right. So then in 1988, we have OU812, Slip and Slide, Push It In, Bitch, Sure Got the Rhythm, I'm Holding Back. Yeah, I got control. Hooked into her system. Don't draw the line, honey, I ain't through with you. The harder, the better. Oh, let's do it till we're black and blue. Samuel R. Hagar, black and blue. <laughs> Okay, now we're down to single entendre. <laughs> you know, that, I just that is wanna, sadly possibly the best song on the album. That's gross. <laughs> uh, by the way, all the Roth era Van Halen records are were thirty minutes and stuffed with classics. Mm-hmm. Now we're at fifty minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's all bottom of the barrel garbage bullshit excrement. So there's a lot of bad keyboardy songs on this. Um, where and the furthering the tragedy of the bad keyboardy songs is that now Ed's not even playing his his cool Oberheim synth anymore. He has some like shit bullshit like digital synth or something, and it's all like 80s like 
Peter Cetera kind of sounding shit. And, and then there's a song, there's a song, a seven minute song called Cabo Wabo, which I'm guessing in the back of his mind, he was thinking it'd be great to have an endlessly long advertisement for my new tequila brand. I think the song predated the tequila. Right. But, um, right. Cause he wasn't going to come out with it until he had an <laughs> album length song about it. That song, Cabo, and you know, I know we titled this, this segment Cabo Wabo, but it does kind of like, uh, I think that's a fair, um, assessment of like their branding as yes. Sammy Hagar. They went from kind of glitz and glamour and limousines to like, they're the Fat guys, guy the, in a Hawaiian the guys shirt hanging out at the barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This gets one star. I gave it. I gave it a star and a half. I don't even know why. Very generous. Human That's being. pretty generous. No. I mean, there's the, okay. We, we've skipped over like feels so good. That's like totally like it came off a of late '80s Steve Winwood album. I'm like, not talking about individual songs. You could just take it from there. There's a, the, one of the, there's a song that was a big hit on this called "When It's Love." That's a kind of a power ballad. So bad. So bad. It sold four million copies. This record. It was pretty big still. Eddie must have been sleepwalking through this time. I can't imagine that he was awake during it. But anyway, moving on to '91 for unlawful carnal knowledge, which, if you spell out the acronym, is hysterically inventive. Mm-hmm. Let the, me get on the fuck album. <laughs> yeah, let me get on. Let me get on. Let me get on some of that. Shake it up. Bake it up. Nice. Uh, let me get on. Let me get on. Let me get on all that. Yeah, yeah. I sure love my baby's pound cake. Samuel R. Hagar, pound cake. Mm. This fucking piece of shit debuted at number one and was there for three weeks. 52 minutes long, bro. This is right in the like uh, in the like the the apex of grunge, right? So this is yeah. like right the same time. Like, I think they probably played like the VMAs at the same time as like probably Nirvana or something. They probably played the same year. And somehow it was uh, it was seen as equally relevant at the time. There's a there's a seven minute and six minute song right in a row on this album. There's just no sense of pacing, no sense of dynamics anymore, no sense of fun. The fun is gone. Long gone. This album sounds like shit. It It sounds so shitty. The the drums have are weirdly sound kind of weirdly very far away. I mean like the drums on Van Halen one there's a lot of reverb on them, but they fucking just slap. Those drums are like fucking ass. How about the drums on Top Jimmy? Yeah, I right. Mean, they're crazy. Or you know, I I had okay. So I listened to this back to back. Um, you know, with I, I I was listening to some of this. When you know, I I sat through this whole thing. And this one's really rough. This one's really like I remember not thinking it was terrible at the time, and that it was like a sort of a return to form. But um, yeah, that's that's not right. No, <laughs> that's wrong. The guitars. He's kind of stopped playing his. You know, I, we haven't really talked about the Frankenstrat, but Eddie also kind of like you know devised and invented his own guitar, um, the Frankenstrat guitar. And by this time, he um, had made this deal with Ernie Ball, and he's playing those as Eddie Van Halen Ernie Ball guitars. And the guitar tones are just very brittle and not warm. The brown, no brown sound, not like this kind of chorusy, washed out kind of like very thin and weak sounding guitars. If you play this back to back, like you play the ra- like a random track in this back to back with like Panama or something, it's shocking. Like how in your face and great the guitar is, mm-hmm. like Panama. And if you mm-hmm. listen to like Pound Cake from this record. Like it doesn't even sound like the same person playing. It's so fucking flat. It's they just, really kind no of de-emph- really de-emphasized his guitars on yeah. this record. And then um, you know, for I mean, it took 
it took four years to create the next record because, you know, they were building up to create, you know, their masterwork. So are we going to rate the fuck album? Oh yeah, one star. One star. That's very fair. Okay, nineteen ninety five. Oh, it has that 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 bullshit song right now on it. Oh yeah, right now. That's, that's the that's, inspirational. That's the Apex. inspirational. It's like that song is like the uh, the equivalent of the the fucking like poster with the cat hanging on the wire, and it's like just hang in there. And just to let you guys know, just because we're not delving super deep into the songs with you. Uh, we listened to everything. Yeah, I, I sat through this fucking thing. I sat, I mean, I had not heard uh, any, most of the Sammy Hagar stuff only because I knew I wouldn't like it. It's almost funny to think about you sitting and listening to it because this is something that you would never under any circumstances. I hated it. I really hated it. Anyway, but then things change because in 95, they make balance. Um, this ain't grooving, this ain't funky. It's on my back, but it ain't no monkey, no. Oh, yeah, give me some of that big, fat money. That's what I want, big, fat money. Big, fat money. Samuel Roy Hagar, big, fat money. Mm, he must have been listening to a lot of Dylan during yeah, that phase. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say. That seems like it's more, a lot more sophisticated. So what changed with this record is, you know, the band worked eight-hour days for three months recording the album, and you can tell. Just kidding. <laughs> this one they bring in uh, they brought in a big name uh, hotshot producer Bruce Fairbairn who had done the uh, the Bon Jovi records the big like New Jersey and Slippery When Wet now keep in mind this is 1995 so it's a little bit of a weird choice to be like let's get the Bon Jovi guy I mean, that's kind of pretty far in the past at this point that kind it's, of a, it's amazing passe. that it's still reached number one I mean you would think by this point seriously just in terms of the turning of the tides with music that they would have been squeezed out. This was sure. the first Van Halen album that came out that I never owned, that okay. I never actually owned a physical copy of. I remember seeing the cover of it and thinking, uh, maybe, you got, maybe. You got deep in. I went. I stayed hoping. with them you through the hoping. fuck album. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, you were hoping. I yeah. get it. Yeah. Um, you want to just give it a? You want to give it a, a rating? Well, there's it, a there's a um, there's a lyric in this one that I picked out that is my that is um, it's from the single "I Can't Stop Loving You." Okay, check this out. <laughs> I can't stop loving you, no matter what I say or do. You know my heart is true. Oh, I can't stop loving you. <laughs> a grown-ass man wrote that. A grown adult human man. Quote, unquote. Wrote, wrote that. Uh, yeah, quote, unquote. So I give this zero stars. What did I, I think I gave this, oh, hold on. I gave it a half star. But balance is really bad. Balance is, is, is pretty bad. And then in 96... They contribute one song to the Twister soundtrack. It's very cleverly titled Humans Being. And uh, this is a very important song. In fact, it's unquestionably the most important song they ever did because it's the last recording to feature uh, Sammy Hagar before he left the band in June 96. Yes. Uh, well, it's a very if you, important. If you, if you song. really want to dive deep, I give it five stars. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to go as deep, this is as far as you can probably go into the rabbit hole. But um, Ed also uh, recorded an instrumental for Twister called "Respect the Wind." Okay, okay, is that great? No, it's, I, I gave it zero stars. Okay, okay. Whereas you give humans being five stars for its importance. I gave humans being one star. Okay. Right. I kind of went for a literal interpretation of humans being. <laughs> then, right. okay, in 1996, a miracle happens. That's right. They record two songs with David Leroth. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> muted. A muted response from Roth. Uh, so best of volume one. 
That's a very optimistically titled record. Um, so there's two new songs, Can't Get This Stuff No More and Me Wise Magic. So the, I remember first hearing Can't Get This Stuff No More. The minute Roth starts singing, it's like, they're back. Yeah. They're back. Immediately, you can hear it. It's like, oh. They completely don't suck. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? And this is actually, these two songs are very important in the, in you know, the, uh, uh, the full gestation of the band because it's the last time that the original four guys recorded. Uh, right, right. Not original four. Sorry. Sorry, Mark Stone. <laughs> <laughs> but the the real guys. Right, yes. The, the classic non-losers. Lineup. The classic lineup. The non-losers. So, yeah, it's like all the swagger and the style is instantly back. It's like, you know, Roth is singing this kind of like uh, syncopated melody that has swing. It's like it's the hook is good. I mean, even Eddie's guitar playing sounds like it's kind of rejuvenated. And it even transcended the fact that Glenn Ballard produced it. Right. Yeah, that, that is kind of weird that he did, that he did yeah, this. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, can't Get the snow f- Stuff No More is very good, but Me Wise Magic is awesome. Uh-huh. Yeah, that one's cool. I, I prefer Can't Get the Stuff. Really? But, um, but I, I, only because Roth kind of, I feel like he kind of oversings a little bit on Me Wise Magic. He's kind of like, kind of like, see, it sounds like he's kind of singing out of his range. But uh, yeah, I like them both. Um, I, I slightly prefer "Can't Get This Stuff." I, I would say, like "Can't Get This Stuff," I would give five stars, and uh, I, I give "Me the, Wise Magic" four stars. Yeah, I give both of those songs. I'm not looking at the rest of the record. Mm-hmm. Just those two songs, I give four stars. Yeah, it, they're worthy comeback. They'll, we'll put them on the playlist. So let's talk about September four in 1996. Um, yeah. Okay. So this then they go on the VMAs in 1996, the four of them, and they announce a comeback. And for a minute, it seems like it's going to happen. Right. Now, at this point, they're only 12 years out from, um, from 1984. You figure if they, di- if they had gotten together and make- made an album, probably would have been pretty good. The whole story behind this thing is just awesome. Um, so, you know, David Lee Roth thought, oh, I'm back in the band. But there is like a, is it apocryphal that they, that they used him for a publicity stunt? I think what happened is they got together and realized that they don't get along at all, and um, that that was that. That was because that. he was. Uh, they had presented an award to Beck, mm-hmm. right? They were <laughs> so standing weird. in the back, <laughs> and Roth was was mugging like crazy, like it was crazy from the Heat days, right? Eat him and smile. Yeah, yeah. I think I think they they felt like he was upstaging them. Like, they, right. like we should kind of zoom out and say they, they they just don't get along. And that, that's kind of another thing. I, I, I really do recommend um, the Mark Maron DLR interview. I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. It is really worth listening to. Um, he talks a lot of he talks about pretty candidly about their relationship. He said they never got along. They never really liked each other. It, you know, the the two brothers are in a perennial state of argument with each other. <laughs> so it, it's it's just a very high drama kind of you know. And you know, I I don't know who pulled the plug. I think it seems like the Van Halen brothers pulled the plug because they thought Roth was upstaging them. Do you know what happened directly after? the back thing no so they went backstage and there was a there was a press conference and they were obviously asking about when's the reunion tour and eddie said first i need to do a hip replacement and i want to record um a new studio album before a tour so then in private david lee roth said eddie that's you shouldn't really talk about your hip replacement. <laughs> it's kind of lame. And they, 
and they almost came to blows, <laughs> and then that ended the reunion. It was about the yeah. It, see, that sounds that sounds like so totally awesome. right on. That's, yeah. the, that's how they are. That's how that's how they operated. So so unfortunately, that reunion uh, it was it lasted all of two songs. We just can't have nice things. No, exactly. Uh, but we did move on to a very very nice thing in 1998. They produced. A, a, a record called Van Halen 3 in the grand tradition of Velvet Underground Squeeze and Genesis's Calling All Stations we have an album by a band that everyone loves that nobody would care about in their right minds yeah even the band themselves I think have sort of scrubbed this from right uh, they don't really see it as a valid record oh what else goes in here the isn't there a, some Motley Crue record that's like new metal like a rap metal thing, they made. Uh, they kind of made like a grunge record, Motley Crue. Yeah, I think that gets lopped into the same thing. They had John Karabi who was the singer. It wasn't that's Fish it. Neal, that's Neal. it. Yeah, that's the one they tried to. They're trying to scrub that too. Yeah. So anyway, this is the only album that that features the lead vocalist of Extreme, Gary Sharon. This um, is the last to feature Michael Anthony. So there's a silver lining there. So Gary Sharon seems like a nice enough fellow. Um, he uh, he's stylistically kind of pretty similar to Sammy Hagar. Yeah, <laughs> kind of has like a similar kind of high effort delivery. Um, sounds like he's kind of always like like uh, working at the top maximum level of uh, how much he can exert himself when he's, when he's singing. Can you imagine though the the decision to make this record sixty five fucking minutes long? Yeah, I, that's, that is that's, so. That's a common thread fucking, of things when ballsy, when, man. You, when you get to this stage of of recorded music history. It's like it's just like every record was like almost that, everything like. is over five minutes long. Almost everything on here could be three minutes long. Um, there's no real audience for this. If you're um, looking, if you if you're thinking this record's going to be like the eyes wide shut of Van Halen's career, and that it's due for a critical reappraisal, and maybe there's good things on it, uh, no, it's not. The best thing about this record is that it's better than Balance. I'll give it one star. I gave this zero and found it even worse than Balance. But you know, this is this is kind of uh, th- these records are so bad. It's kind of hard to compare them against each other. I like this one even less than that. Um, My favorite thing is that after that, in 1999, they started work on a follow-up album. I know. Called Love Again. <laughs> I should also mention the closing song on uh, Van Halen 3, which is How Many Say I, which is a, pa- a piano ballad that Ed sings. Um, and it's one of those things like, why didn't somebody tell him no? <laughs> why didn't somebody tell him that it can't be on the record? It really distinctly kind of sounds like the uh, the, the, the Dana Carvey Chop and Broccoli <laughs> skit where he's kind of writing it on the spot. <laughs> it's like really long. and mm. I like it a little bit better than Balance. Again, you know, who cares? It's it's a bad album no matter what. Yeah, it didn't. It did that one. That one didn't pan out. Then, a, then they were just kind of adrift after for a while, and then in in two. Well, they did some touring, I guess, back with Sammy. I think in that period. Well, Sammy and, came back and they toured Sammy, a little bit. Sammy came back because in two thousand four they released the best of both worlds. Yeah. Hey, Got, we're getting back together with Sammy. Got the hand, put it where it's going to heal you. Got the finger. Put it right there on the trigger. Well, pump it up. Pump it up. Baby, make it bigger. Samuel Roy Hagar, up for breakfast. Still got it, Sammy. Yeah. Still got it. So there's three new tracks that Sammy Hagar shit out for this release. I'll give it a half star. Uh, Yeah, same. 
So they then they also made some demos with Roth in like 2000. They got that to, I didn't know. Yeah, they got together and they they did some recording with Roth around 2000. But then like somebody said, "Your mom is fat" or something, and then they had to stop that project. <laughs> more more hip replacement so drama. The, 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 <laughs> so that was it. They they just don't get it at this point. Um, so um, they fritter away another decade um, doing essentially nothing. They also they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007 and did not perform because um, Ed was in rehab for alcohol. So um, a little concerning Ed's health here at this time. Um, you know, kind of a lot of lot of drinking going on. Um, but then um, they went into the studio in 2011, really at the behest at the behest of Ed's son Wolfgang, which leads us to Phase Five. Right. Mommy and Daddy Get Back Together, 2012. Remarkably, the story has a happy ending. It really does. <laughs> it's a, it's a, not, not it's a redemption story. It is. It is. So, you know, this record, thank God it happened. That's all I have to say. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the, most of the tracks on this uh, were originals and not reworked tracks, uh, right? Yeah, so most of these came from, um, and I think this was Wolf's idea, you know, how to get that that old sound, have Roth back in the band. Is they, you know, there's a there is a lot of stuff from that were on both the Zero demos and the Warner demos um, that um, never came out. So there, and a lot of them were like you know very classic Van Halen sounding riffs. And these date back. So seven of the album's thirteen songs date back to between seventy five and seventy seven. Right. That's then, why the record's as incredible yeah, as Yeah, and then is. there's another song, Blood and Fire, that was from around the 1984 era. 1984, right. right. Um, and so it has that good time feeling. It has the, uh, the I feel like the one song where they kind of took a swing and miss was the first single in the lead-off song, Tattoo. I kind of like that. Which, um, in its original form, this is a very obscure Van Halen piece, it was called Going Down in Flames, and it was kind of a dark sort of song. Um, and where a tattoo is kind of striving to be kind of a goofy pop song, it's the only one that has kind of a synth on it. I, that when they I released, like it. When I they, do like that. When one. They, it's okay. When they released it as a single, I think people were kind of a little bit disappointed. I, they probably shouldn't have made that the single. Um, but um, right after that, the album kind of takes off, and there's a bunch of good songs on it. It's a, it's again maybe a little long if they had made it ten songs instead of whatever it is, fifteen. Yeah, it yeah, might have been true. a bit stronger. But on the other hand, I'm glad to be able to hear all that stuff. There's um, only one song I really don't like, uh, Honey Baby yeah, Sweetie Doll. Which, that one's an old one, too. But, um, you know, you, the great songs to me are Tattoo, She's the Woman, Chinatown, Blood and Fire, Bullethead, As Is, The Trouble with Never, and Big River. Yeah, I like You and Your Blues a lot. That, yeah, that one is um, a new one that Ed had recently written. And it had, when the chorus kicks in, it has the great Van Halen backup vocal sound. Um, that's another kind of one of the things that really makes him sound like Van Halen is when Ed is singing backup vocals. And I think Wolf does a really good uh, Michael Anthony approximation. Yeah. Wolf is very talented. Um, he's, he got his dad and his uncle's talent. And I, he kind of shepherded this project through, kind of kept them on task, um, from what I understand, kind of helped them pick the riffs and was like a pretty big part of this record getting made. And I think that kind of Ed was very excited to work with Wolf. And, um, you know, what can you say? The band's Van Halen. You can't really... Uh, Look, what, seems like here, he belongs. Here's what I'll say about this record. I think it's actually better than Diver Down. I could see... Yeah, sure. I could see that. Yeah. So that in itself is good enough. It means it fits into the canon. It's a great thing that it happened because, you know, uh, Ed died... Uh, what year did he pass away? I think just last year. Yeah. So, you know, that that's it for the band. Right. Um, you know, and so to go out on a note like this... 
is probably a treat for them because they get to tie up loose ends. Yeah, and so they toured. Speak. They did a big, very successful tour with Roth back in, in the um, in the in the, the lead vocal role. And um, you know, I, I love the guy, but he's he is struggling to get through a lot of those performances. You know, he's is uh, he uh, was never a great live performer, really. Um, it was more about the kind of jumps and the kicks. And um, he's he's definitely kind of struggling to get through some of these, but I'm I, you know he gave it the old college try. So um, I didn't get to see any of those shows, which I'm, I kind of wish I had gone and seen one. Um, and Roth is now officially retired. Well, f- no, he'll be officially retired in about a, <laughs> in about a month and a half. <laughs> uh, you know when is it? January after the early January 2022 shows. D- Diamond Dave, you think you're going to take up golf in your retirement? Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> All right, so let's do our top three countdown. Uh, my number three best Van Halen record is 1984. My number two Van Halen record is Women and Children First. And my number one top Van Halen record of all time is Van Halen One. My worst is Balance. Nice. Okay, well, this is like kind of for me. This is really like trying to choose between your favorite children, but um, I'm gonna go ahead and go. My number three Van Halen record is uh, "Women and Children First. My number two most favorite Van Halen album is Van Halen One, and my number one most favorite Van Halen album is "Fair Warning." Cool. Pretty different lists. Cool. We yeah, usually kind w- of agree on these pretty much. Worst. But, um, worst is uh, Van Halen Three. Interesting. You don't like when an artist branches out, do you, Joe? I could really call that branching out. Very ambitious 65-minute LP, my friend. Yeah. All right. Well, I, we really want to thank you for joining us. I know, you know, I love these guys. Joe, it's it's like his idol, so he was yeah. really looking forward to this one. And thanks again uh, to Diamond Day for sitting in with us. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, definitely follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, unquestionably follow us uh, on the platform of your choice. Uh, you want to flip those cards at all, Joe? Uh, yeah, we're going to have a butt-kicking uh, playlist for this, uh, so that'll be um, available, too, on the, on the Spotify. Yes, follow us on all platforms, Spotify. With all kinds of links and goodies. and yeah. Do a deep dive with us. Trust us. It's fun. Yeah. We'll see you around next time. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.